0: Welcome to Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. I'm your host. In today's episode, we will try to raise our view significantly and discuss things like why we fail to see progress, why we fail to plan for a long-term future, and why we fail to help the world in an effective way. My guest today is Stefan Schubert, A researcher of psychology at the university of oxford in england welcome to the show
1: thank you Anders. i'm happy to be here
0: you're actually a philosopher right and from sweden can you tell us a little about how you ended up in oxford and tell us also about your current research
1: Uh, yes certainly yeah so it's quite a long story um so Basically, I'm involved in the effective altruism movement. So, effective altruism is uh, this idea. Uh, it's like a philosophy, but it's also a social movement that's about doing good as effectively as possible. So, you know, many people do good; they donate to charity and so on. But they don't necessarily always think about effectiveness uh, so much. So, so effective altruists they argue that. Uh, uh, well, just like we are effective, uh, by and large, as investors or like you know, private companies, they're trying to maximize profits and they 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 they're effective in that sense. So, like we as donors and charities and so on sh- should also be effective. So, I uh, got involved in this uh, movement in two thousand fourteen. And then I I, I I moved to Oxford to start working for an effective altruist organization, and currently uh, I'm doing research then on, on effective altruist uh, themes. Um, so it's your
0: engagement in this organization, in this movement, that has led you to Oxford, and, the, and you c- you can actually work at the university, yes. as a as a member of this uh, movement.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, it's slightly more complex. So what, what happened was that I. I moved to Oxford in 2016 to work for Center for Effective Altruism, which is basically like the, the, the central organization of the, the Effective Altruism movement that sort of organizes the annual conferences and they have the sort of the, the, uh, the Effective Altruism Forum and so on. It's sort of at the heart of, of the Effective Altruism movement. And then, So I worked there for, for two years as a researcher and then I left to start working at the university, but I continued working on effective altruist themes, and specifically then, I even though, like you said, like I'm, I'm a philosopher by training, I, I joined this uh, psychology lab, the Social Behavior and Ethics Lab, but they're working sort of in the, in the intersection between philosophy and psychology, and specifically, they're studying sort of lay people's views of questions of philosophical and ethical significance. So, so we are studying mm-hmm. questions like why, why don't lay people donate effectively? Why, why isn't like effective altruism already sort of like a thing or like that's more uh, widely spread and like what, what are people's views of the long-term future which effective altruists find important as well.
0: But you started your philosophy studies in, in Sweden. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I did all my studies in, in Sweden uh, so first at Stockholm University, uh, so, so I'm from Stockholm, and then I moved to Lund in, in southern Sweden to do my PhD. And then I moved to England actually to do a postdoc at uh, London School of Economics. Uh, so it was during that time at, at London School of Economics that I discovered effective altruism.
0: Yeah. Effective altruism, is, it's a fascinating concept. Uh, so what is what is wrong with people's giving why are why why is it ineffective and uh, what what's the reason behind this ineffectiveness what's the what's the psychological and the philosophical uh basis for for uh for not not for failing to to give effectively and what is giving effectively basically
1: right yeah so uh it's a bit of a puzzle why people give Ineffectively, because like they're, they're sacrificing a lot for the sake of others, right? So like American giving, it's like I, I saw some figure that it's like two percent of GDPs. It's, like it's a substantial amounts, but then they don't. People don't make sure that this money end up with the most effective charities. So it's a bit of a puzzle. I mean, it would be more. Uh, uh, understandable maybe if people hadn't donated at all, like you know that that's just selfishness. But people aren't just purely selfish; like they don't want to help others, but then they don't make sure that the the money make the the um, maximum amount of impact. So, um, yeah, so uh, like one way to think about it is that it's partly just that they don't know about uh, the most effective charities and they don't know how to donate effectively. They're sort of looking at, at the wrong things. Like the, some people, they're focusing a lot on charities overhead, you know, the administration costs. So, uh, mm-hmm. But actually that's not as important as many people think, because like, unfortunately you can be quite ineffective, even though you don't have large administration costs, and vice versa. Like you know, you, you might have to recruit, y- you know, talented people whom you have to pay larger salaries. So like you you, you might have to train people, and that's like you know it incurs overhead costs. So like higher overhead costs can actually increase effectiveness. Or something. So so they so that's the one aspect that they don't know about how to do it effectively. But then there are also studies that show that like even if you tell people like you know for instance. Uh, uh, arthritis uh, uh, charities, uh, like you know, these joint diseases, they are more effective than cancer charities. Well, just hypothetically in the in the study, but if you mm-hmm. tell them that, then they still want to donate to the to the cancer charity because they they have sort of this preference. They, they feel for, more
0: sorry for people having cancer than people yeah, maybe uh, having arthritis.
1: Maybe they, they, you know, have family members who died from cancer, or maybe like it's because cancer is more widely talked about. It's, it's, but it's not just this cancer versus arthritis case, it's like more general uh, trend that like people often have these charities that they prefer, even when they're told that they are less effective. So that's the other aspect. So, first, there is like the, the lack of knowledge, but then there, is, there are these sort of subjective preferences, as some people uh, have, have called them, that people have preferences for certain charities. And so they then they uh, want to do to them, even if they're told that they're less effective. Um, but hmm. then, so that those are sort of two causes, but then I think there's something else, which is sort of in the background, which is that you have, there's this sort of norm, which is that, well, it's your right to donate wherever you want, like if you're told that this charity is more effective and you would be do more good if you donated to that than this other charity that you prefer, then you're not obliged to choose that more effective charity so uh, so like. It's not just that you feel that you want to donate to this uh, uh, cancer charity mm-hmm. for instance, like other people also say, well go ahead it's, it's your money like it's totally fine and interestingly they, 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 there was this paper on this um, they found that there was a difference in people's perception of donors and people in sort of positional responsibility so for instance a, a president of a of a medical research center like they were supposed these people in positions of trust, yeah. they are supposed to go with what's most effective. So they can't just go with whatever they feel like, you know, mm. but donors can. So there, there's a difference there uh, in that, like, you know, the donors aren't really responsible for the outcomes uh, and therefore they, they can just go with whatever they feel like and they're even encouraged to.
0: So how, how is it possible to, to change the way we uh, the, the charities work, for instance, in order for people to be able to, to give more effectively? Is it, is it that the, the charities should change or is it that, that the, the mindsets of ordinary people should change, which I suppose would be a lot more difficult, of course?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, first of all, I would say it's a tall order. It's difficult because like <laughs> effect, effective altruism has been around, uh, and, I mean, depending on how you count, like 10 to 15 years or so, and like the, there are a fair number of effective altruists, and there are a fair, e, a lo, larger number of people who sort of are not maybe committed effective altruists but sort of donate to effective altruist charities, you know. Just they, they 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 look at the website and they find what the most effective charts are. But but still, those the numbers are relatively small, and mm. uh, unfortunately, I I don't expect that to to change fundamentally anytime soon. So, uh, but but I do uh, expect and hope, you know, for this mindset to slowly spread but
0: But in the community of charities and organizations something might happen some some change might happen perhaps if they were more became more uh, aware of the, the the importance of effective giving or maybe they are so entrenched in their their old ways of doing things their old habits that they are reluctant to to think in new ways
1: Yeah, so one issue, I think, is, uh, and like you asked also before, like, what what is effectiveness? And uh, that is a quite tricky question. So, uh, basically, if a charity is ineffective, that can be either because, like, it has a given goal, and it sort of just pursues that goal in sort of ineffective ways because they have like incompetent staff or or so but then the the other way in which they can be ineffective is because they've chosen a problem or a course as some people call it, where it's just very difficult to make progress
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um like you know there are some some problems like for instance in um with regards to diseases uh, like i'm yeah. very much not an expert on that but there there are studies that show that there's some some diseases you can just make much uh, more progress on with you know uh, less dollars ultimately like like malaria for instance because there are these like you know quite easy interventions like handing out bed nets whereas other um what other diseases, it's just much harder to to make progress on. So so I think lots of the differences in effectiveness, they actually come from like what problem people have chosen, not like from how Hmm. effective or how ineffective they are at sort of working on that problem. Um, And I think like often when people think about the ineffectiveness, then they think about someone who is like, you know, incompetent at working at the specific course. they They're not, they're not thinking of like them having chosen the wrong course as it were. And, and I also think that people, they don't want to change course, Like basically they have sort of chosen their course and they, they, they committed to it. Uh, and, you know, they feel strongly about it. And so, and so that's something that effective altruists um, argue for that one should be sort of course neutral, instead mm. of choosing from the start which course to work on, uh, like, for instance, climate change or you know malaria or, or what have you. You should sort of look at all the courses with a neutral mindset and think, well, now I'm going to compare all of these courses uh, with each other. And then I'm going to calculate which one is the most effective. And then I'm going to choose that one. So. Uh, um, and how does one do that? Well, that's obviously like uh, there are measurement issues here. What, one way to, to measure it is in terms of you know, how much welfare you, you create, like how, many, how much um, uh, well-being. So And like obviously, for instance, uh, better health, that would be one aspect of, of well-being, but it's not the only one. uh uh, so you know charities that don't try to promote uh better health they can also be measured through like what other ways they they sort of promote happiness and and well-being
0: yeah it seems like it's a pretty complicated process to find out what's the most effective and what's most uh what, what, what would be the best uh think you have to give us a couple of examples here to just to see what you're talking about i mean can you you give us a a clear and good example of a very effective um, charity for instance and and another one that is not so effective
1: yeah so um yeah so i'm not actually like an expert on these sort of charity valuations and it's it's it is really tricky uh, to establish charity the effect but maybe there is so, some like, some something
0: that is obvious right. some some yeah, example yeah, yeah. that is obvious but
1: but just uh, just so that that's clear but anyway so there's one charity that's often mentioned which is this against malaria foundation which hands out bed nets in 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 some african countries if if I understand correctly um, so yeah basically like uh, Malaria spreads via these mosquitoes, uh, which, you know, bite people. And then it's very simple intervention. You just hand out these bed nets and people, they put them up uh, next to their bed and then they don't get bitten by the mosquitoes and then they don't get malaria. So, um, And then, so Will McCaskill, he has his book, Doing Good Better, which I, I much recommend. So there... The sort of quintessential example of an ineffective charity there is this play pump where, like, I, I think the idea was that you should be able to sort of pump up water via a sort of play pump where people would just, or like children would just, uh, you know, they, sh- they would play and they would uh, 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 on, on this play pump and then, you know, water would, would get up. Uh, would, would be lifted up if, through this well. I don't remember the exact mechanics of how, how this would work now, but but basically this was like one of these ideas that sound great on paper, but then it didn't work at all. And like you know, women actually had to do this themselves if, if I remember correctly. Like the children weren't plagued or like
0: yeah.
1: whatever. So so uh, so that but yeah. So that that is one example
0: yeah i i also read uh, willie mccaskill's book and i think we can mention the title once again doing good better yeah it's an excellent book so and i i also actually interviewed him for an article for for the newspaper i was working for but uh, a few years ago and i i was fascinated by by the whole movement and this this uh, concept of effective altruism i hadn't heard of it before that but um I understand that it was not completely new at that time, but I, I, and I, I am fascinated. And I think it's it's really something that uh, we all should actually consider more. If not, perhaps uh, go all in. I'm I'm not convinced, but I think it's we should go further in that direction. In my opinion, one thing that I was thinking a bit of about when I read the book and afterwards also is, is that. Um, it seems a, a little bit, and I think you were actually uh, scraping on that surface before when, we, when you were talking about uh, the difficulty in in uh, um, pinpointing what is what is effectiveness, because it seems sometimes a little bit technical, maybe, and 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 paradoxically a little bit dehumanized, perhaps, uh, which is, I guess, one reason why people are reluctant to just look at this very very scientifically I an example is the beggar on the street in the streets you know we have in Sweden like in many other European countries these days beggars from Romania and Bulgaria sitting in the streets and um, as far as I remember William McCaskill said when I asked him about that he said that oh that's not a very effective way of, of being altruistic They're handing out um, uh money to to people sitting there but i i think in a way i mean you you get you get a connection between two people two two human beings when you meet this person you can i i personally think that it's the best is the best way of doing it is to actually establish uh uh, human contact so you have eye contact with this person you can even talk to them and i I think you you don't even have to give anything uh um, actually to 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 make this pe this person a little bit uh, less unhappy and and being i mean there's a value in this person realizing that he or she is being seen by somebody else and then you can give a little something you can give some money and you know i, I think i mean there, there's a human human um, bond there human connection that makes you Feel that okay. I know exactly where this money is going, or at least I think so, because I know this person, and I know that this person is a, is a poor person who needs needs money. So I want to do this instead of sending my money into a black hole of uh, in in some charity that I know I don't know how they are uh, dealing with things in, in poor countries. Can you understand what I'm what I'm yeah, aiming yeah, at here? Yeah,
1: I I I do understand that. So I guess there are two things I want to say. That so one thing is that I, I do think it's like partly because of the sort of social role that we have assigned to charity. So I think we have like a slightly different uh take on like how the government should act, for instance. So we like with you know government officials, we don't think that they should just hand out money to whoever they happen to see in the street, but they should take a more systematic approach. And like we 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 don't necessarily find that sort of too dehumanizing, uh, like that, you know, the, I mean, maybe there is some criticism of that, that sort of the government takes it sort of more bureaucratic.
0: Well, in the, in, in the migration policies, you will find a lot of that kind of discussion. Uh,
1: right, but yeah, but I guess people By and large, they accept that the government needs to have like general rules, and that that's like a good way of uh, approaching uh, Mm. things. And I guess that to some extent, like you could say that effective altruists say that well, we should sort of extend that mindset to, you know, individual donors. Uh, But then, but then I still. I, I just mean that to be sort of a partial answer. So I, I think that what you're saying is, is interesting. So like many effective altruists are utilitarians, but uh, uh, not everyone and like uh, effective altruism isn't like identical with utilitarianism. but I still think that it's like you know, several of the uh, Peter Singer is, uh, is utilitarian and, and many yeah. effective altruists mm. are utilitarians. So, so and you know, um utilitarianism. I mean, it's uh, this philosophy that, at least on one reading, it's sort of uh, very hard to live according to um, for for humans, like so, because like you're supposed, then again, just on one reading, to sort of give away almost all your money until you're as poor as the poorest people. Uh, on the earth, like, and not hmm. prioritize your loved ones and sort of, and then a bunch of other things, also, also, sort of, potentially to be willing to engage in um, sort of crimes. If that, I, I don't actually think that that's what utilitarianism entails, like, all things considered, but like, on the first, re, like, you know, th- there is one possible interpretation of it that, that, that says that. So then you have this ideology. Uh, or, like, this, this philosophy um, which uh, uh, seems then to, to, to imply these conclusions, which is like very hard for, for people to live up to. But then, so somehow, we, um, like, ironically, it's sort of like from, from the utilitarian perspective, well, well, if it's impossible for humans to live according to utilitarianism then that's sort of bad news for for utilitarianism and it's sort of like the the utilitarian because they want to maximize um effectiveness it would actually be more um effective from the utilitarian perspective to sort of lower the demands right because like if if the utilitarian goes around and says like well everyone should donate 95 percent of their income and then nobody does that then like very there's very little good that's being done uh, you know uh, according yeah. to the utilitarian's own metrics, so it's like then better to to um reduce the demands, like so uh, giving what you can has ten percent of, of, of your income um, and you know maybe you should adjust your message in other ways as well, so um like uh, with regards to sort of being neutral with respect to all different kinds of courses. So like, you know, some people might say that, well, you know, when you donate to charity, uh, like if you sit in, your, in front of your computer uh, and you think about all the different charities, then you should choose the most effective one. But you can also sort of have a little extra you know donations that you just give spontaneously to people in the street just because like you know that's
0: what it feels good
1: you, you do if you're a human or whatever so uh my point is that it's sort of a tricky question uh like what issues you should just go with the straightforward utilitarian analysis and what issues you should rather say no This is too far-reaching, and like we can't take this. uh, uh, And like you know, that it's like psychologically unsustainable, and so. so, And I think that people within the effective altruism movement are sort of have slightly different views on this. And uh, I I find it a a complicated issue where, like, you know, psychology is highly relevant for that issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Fascinating! Wow. I understand you you had something of an aha moment uh, after a couple of years of studying effective altruism. Can you delve a little into that?
1: Yeah. um, Yes. So what happened was that I discovered effective altruism in in 2014, like I said, and then I actually started running these projects on my own. uh, And like, actually that might have been when we got in contact the first time because I I started this uh, Blog, for instance, that where I analyzed op- opinion pieces, actually in the in the newspaper that I think you worked at at the, time, at the time. Yes,
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, and then I ran like a, a couple of other projects, sort of in in the same bucket. I started it Network for Evidence Based Policy and, and so on. Um. So and I because the way I thought about it was like, well, I discovered effective altruism. but then I was like, well, what what can I contribute with? I'm. A f- philosopher, and I have this training in like rationality and good argumentation and so on. So, okay, so these are the things that are natural for for me to do. Uh, so I did that then for like a year, year uh, and a half. Or so. But then I, I moved to Center for Effective Altruism. But then I get, I guess I realized that my previous projects might have been like a bit... Uh, uh, naive. I had sort of relied too much on, on volunteers uh, and not didn't have like enough organizational structure. They were just much more sophisticated in, in that. And then the other thing was that I guess um, effective altruism, uh, it has this sort of high level message about like, well, you should be effective uh, and, and altruistic. But then and I hadn't like really realized how much they had been thinking about like, or how set they were on specific causes. Um, and in particular, maybe that there was such a focus on existential risk and the long-term future, uh, which I, I think that the sort of turn towards those issues has been even more pronounced in recent years, but already then in 2016, I think, like, uh, if, if, if you talk to people at Center for Effective Altruism, then they, they were Quiet set on those issues. Okay, and I hadn't really realized that.
0: But... Yeah, those issues, those questions around long-term risks are really fascinating. We'll come back to that, I think. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess it all—it's all interconnected in a way. One yeah. thing, or one one um, set of issues, set of problems that I might be interconnected with this uh, psychology around effective altruism that you've just been talking about is something that you and I were in touch about a few years ago uh, concerning uh, something I have written a lot about, not least in my book, uh, The Cozy Darkness of the Apocalypse. And it is the the fact that we humans seem to have uh, a tendency to devote very much time to worry about the, the misery in the world, which is, I mean, relatively rare. And ignore the ubiquitous uh, good stuff. I mean, there are so many good things happening or neutral things happening all the time that there's almost never anything really, really dangerous happening in a person's life, especially not in the rich world today. But nevertheless, people are so focused on, on, on these bad things, these, uh, this misery that we that obviously exists in the world, but very few people actually experience it. And is, is, we all know that the news is full of this, this kind of misery. So is it only the, the media's fault, would you say, or is there something, something, some other factors at play here?
1: Yeah, it's certainly true that the media often focuses on negative news. But to the extent that they do that, I think that's, because like what that's what gets them clicks and, and so on so and that so then you have to look at consumers' behavior right so media consumers behavior so uh, like you know if the current media would change their behavior presumably they would just be replaced by by other media which would again cater to the same old instincts and you wouldn't really get them any any change so um, yeah I, I do think that uh, one aspect is this that like loss aversion idea that people are sort of
0: um, yeah what is that can you explain a little bit more loss aversion i've 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 heard about that also yeah
1: yeah so they more they're more afraid of uh, losing than of you know foregoing gains so like losing something makes them more upset than uh, not gaining something and and Mm. more generally sort of Losses uh, loom very large in uh, you know in our attention. that like we, we pay a lot of attention to to losses, but then I think there's also something which is like maybe not just psychological, and that it's more sort of a structural feature of existence. That like if you if you build something, it's often gradual over a long period of time. Whereas if you destroy something that often goes like very quickly, like, well, obviously mm-hmm. the wars, they destroy things very quickly and then you build up things over a long period of time. But also the economy, like the crash of two thousand eight, and is very swift. And then it took like many years for uh, unemployment to, to go down. And then, so, so then um, it, and then it just so happens that, like, the news is very focused on sort of sudden changes, and it's the sudden changes happen to be negative mostly. But there's the sort a of root cause: is this uh, focus on on sudden changes? And I, I think that's something else that's uh, not so good about our current media consumption that is that we're so focused on the sort of day-to-day news as opposed mm. to the longer trends
0: mm. um, which yeah it, it, yeah tell me about it i mean i've been an editor and a, and a journalist for many years and i yeah. know that any editor can write a, a negative uh, headline in her sleep i mean um, and and wow. but but a, but a positive headline is really difficult because as you say many of the positive news are things that come gradually. They're not, they're slow. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean, sometimes they happen like the fall of the Berlin Wall, for instance. And so then Yeah, then, then yeah, there yeah, are yeah,
1: there are exceptions. And I was actually thinking like, I had this hypothesis that maybe there are some news where there is like the opposite bias actually, like, you know, tech news for instance. Like- tech you know? news and
0: also uh, e- economy news uh, to some extent, I think.
1: Oh yeah, that could be. But like with tech, then it's sort of like you know that to say that um, self-driving cars will come next year—that's news, right? Yeah, so that's true. Therefore, people talk a lot about that. Whereas, like saying it will come in two decades, or like uh, th- that's sort of, sort of boring. So that's not not. So that might be like <laughs> the opposite.
0: Sorry. That's interesting. That's th- then the bias is is inverted. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. That they, in, in that in that field, you want positive news to get headlines, yeah. Um, so, but it seems to me that this is not very useful for us because it means that people, um, as far as I can understand, they they and I've also written this, so I I think I think I think it. Uh, people believe that the world is actually worse off than it is, and um, sometimes I think they almost want to have that belief because for instance, there's a Swedish uh, writer uh, called Lasse, um, Lasse His name is Lasse and he has written many books about the development in Asia, for instance. And uh, Mm. when he was talking about that, uh, uh, a couple of decades ago, talking to people about it, um, he held lectures about his book and his book contained many, positive conclusions about what had happened in Asia and not least in India between the 1970s and the the late 1990s. People had had gotten it very much, very much better. Materially, they had uh, lived a very much better life. Uh, And um, it has many, many things had improved and and, uh, technology and information um, was better. Everything was better in the villages out out in the uh, countryside of India. And when he told people about that, when he spoke about that, he said, he told me that the audience was kind of looked a bit sad. And I mean, they listened and they nodded and they were mm. smiling a little bit, but they didn't look really happy. And then often someone raised their hands, their hand uh, at the end of the lecture and uh, asked him, well, there are so many positive, positive things you have to say about this. Aren't there any really crises going on in the world? And then he said, oh, well, yes, of course, I'm, I think climate change is a real threat. And then it was like a big relief in the audience. Right. Everyone was just, oh, finally, he said it. Yeah. Thank you. They want to <laughs> hear that there is a crisis going on. They want to hear. And I've experienced that, too. When I, I mean, when I wrote my book about this, uh, people were like, well, yeah, it's probably correct what you say. And, and it's nice and all that. But... You can't really think in that way. So, I mean, it doesn't make people happy to tell them that the world is good. It, do you follow me? Do you understand? What yeah.
1: I, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not I'm sure talking about. that it makes them happy to think that the world is bad either. It's no, nothing makes happen. them happy. <laughs> no, it doesn't make them happy. But it's some kind of other kind of feeling. I mean, I, I, I don't really know why they're thinking about it, it in this way, but if I am to speculate, so at least one motivation I think can be that, well, by saying that things um, have, or have become much better, you're saying, well, I mean, you're not saying, but people might interpret you as saying that they are pretty good now, and also that sort of they're acceptable now, that mm. you know, we, we shouldn't do more. Okay, uh, we, so there's like a conflation of, um, of uh, these different statements and that they might think that, well, by saying that, uh, you know, things have become so much better, you're sort of like,
0: You're not, not entitled really- to, to, to ask for anything more.
1: Yeah, like you're not really morally serious in a way. You're sort of like downplaying the people's suffering or or so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's wrong, but... uh, but People can get
0: that impression. Yes, I understand. Mm.
1: I think that this uh, Max Roser, uh, Mm -hmm. this um, founder of Our World in Data, he wrote this article which... uh, was called something like, the world has become much better, but it's still much worse than it should be. Or so, it wasn't exactly that. But like, <laughs> there was something along those lines. And I, th- I thought it was a smart idea to have that kind of headline, to sort of defeat this implication that like by saying that things have become better, I am thereby also saying that like, everything is fine now. I'm, I'm not saying that. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I think, I mean, in general, I think that uh, um, in communication, people sort of jump to conclusions about what you believe, like often like beliefs, which are, you know, quite far removed from what you're literally saying all the time. So And I I think it's often important when, when you try to communicate with people, sort of think through what are all these implications now? What? What can people infer about me which is not sort of written on the lines and then Mm.
0: um, do you think this is something new a new phenomenon or have humans always thought in this way that they have focused on the on the bad things and and ignored the good things
1: uh yeah i find that difficult. Uh, I mean, so for one thing, I guess that like prior to the industrial revolution, I guess that uh, there wasn't the same kind of feeling that we're sort of going in, in anywhere. Mm. Yeah, like I think was so slow
0: this. that they didn't really even 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 um, have the idea of, of any kind of evolution at all.
1: Yeah.
0: During one lifetime, nothing really happened.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, I guess also like in fairness, one should say I agree that there is this um, narrative of like things are getting worse and and so on. And I think that was also like you know there were early critics of the industrial revolution that sort of romanticized the old life and, and so on. So so in that respect, like the, these kinds of feelings have been there from before. But but I also think that been like tremendous amount of optimism uh, about progress and there is still like so Mm. so I I would rather say there are these sort of two camps which are sort of fighting against each other and they've done so for for at least since the industrial revolution
0: you have a point there yeah Uh, But you were mentioning um, the the industrial revolution and and the where we have come to now because one of my one of the uh, the starting points of this podcast is that, that that the world is integrating in a way that has never happened before in history, and I find it a bit odd that so few thinkers actually uh, delve into that or take that into account when they are analyzing what 's happening in the world to me it's really crucial one crucial thing is that the world is uh, is becoming what i mean we are we're focusing. Uh, as we have said just recently, we are focusing on the problems with that when we are integrating, when, when countries are interacting much more with each other and people are interacting much more than there is conflict, then there is friction between groups and friction between countries. And that leads to conflicts, uh, smaller conflicts today than a few decades ago, I would argue, but anyway, conflicts and mm-hmm. people are scared that, 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 that war is going to erupt and erupt and all that. But uh, Nevertheless, there is something happening in the sense that to the effect that the world is integrating. And I think that that's, in my opinion, that is a huge uh, event, actually, and which means that that we are in crucial times now. And maybe, maybe just maybe that is also one reason why people, especially in the West, where we kind of feel like we have come to to, to, to the end of the road, so to speak, because there are no big ideologies around, there are no, I mean, before, when the world wasn't integrated, you could always expand geographically or culturally or economically. But I mean, we have only this planet and this planet is, so to speak, full, full of people and full of the economy, full of one culture almost. Uh, which means that people get the feeling that uh, where to go now we have nowhere to go nothing's i mean that that's why they can't really see a future because they can't they can't visualize what will happen with a world that is completely full of of everything Mm -hmm. but you you haven't really when we have spoken before you haven't really mentioned this this the fact that that we are integrating as a factor as as a factor behind a concept of a crucial time do you act do you even Think that we live in crucial times and in that case in in what respect would you say
1: yeah so um crucial times it's um it's a question that can be sort of answered in, in several different ways i i guess yeah i like if you zoom out a lot then obviously like uh, uh, you know, any time since the industrial revolution is crucial. And like certainly, yeah, so sort of 20th and 21st century, like from a historical perspective, like there's a tremendous amount of stuff happening compared to sort of, I don't know, the ninth century, the 10th century. Or so. so, but then I'm not sure that like uh, the sort of the second and now the third decade of, of this century are like especially crucial relative to Say the second half of, of the 20th century, uh, like sort of economic growth was exceptionally high uh, in the sort of first decades after, after World War II, and then there were all these political developments. There was like the fall of the of the Berlin Wall, uh, which was like a tremendously large event. Uh, and I don't think we've seen like events on, on that scale. More recently, I mean, the the, the one thing which is a uh, very very important uh, development of historical proportions that is, of course, the rise of China, uh, and that will change the geopolitical uh, hmm. situation uh, in the world. I, I, I think, yeah, that's the one uh, event which I, I find really really important.
0: Well, that's a country and a, and. A political system and the nation, but what about technical development, artificial artificial intelligence, GM uh, crops, all that, those things that are happening?
1: Yeah. um, Like, yes, there are these studies which suggest that sort of economic growth uh, for the... um, last few decades has actually been relatively low by sort of modern standards. And uh, if that's right, then that sort of is probably partially because there have been more sort of technological advances, because technological advances is a big part of why we see economic growth. But I mean, of course, that can change in the future. Uh, So, that's absolutely possible. But, uh, I guess, the best evidence of like how it's going to go in the near future. That's like how it's gone in the recent past. And like mm. the recent past it suggests that like the technology... Like the weather forecast. <laughs> yeah. And like and like I said, I, I, I do seriously mean that there can be sort of a, a sort of positive bias with respect to technological development. Because there mm. you always hear about... Uh, like breakthroughs and and so on. There's like, well, if something didn't really work as well as they thought, then you're not going to hear as much about it. Uh, Like, I mean, with self-driving cars, for instance, I mean, I'm not very much not an expert in it, but but it seems like a few years ago, there was like tons of reports like how we're going to see that soon. And now it's not like you're seeing tons of more negative reports. You're just not seeing much news about it at all and i think that's sort of a common
0: term. but hasn't it been like that with every new technical development like when the the mobile phone arrived in the 90s on a broad scale to the general right. public it had been in the pipeline for 30 years or something
1: yeah i mean yeah you know self-driving cars might come sooner than you know i I I might expect so that, that that's definitely possible but I'm I'm just pointing to this uh, general phenomenon that there can be bias in the sort of positive direction with respect to technological development but that that doesn't rule out that you know we might see great technological breakthroughs during the 2020s ni-
0: no talking of the future uh, you mentioned before and I promised to come back to that uh long term risks, yeah, uh, long-term planning in general and our inability to, to actually uh see the very long term and assess risks in a in an um in a rational and sensible way. Uh you you're studying this quite a lot as well, aren't you? And uh, what yeah, are your views? Something that
1: yeah so like I, I think there is a quite interesting sort of collision here of sort of different debates and different ideas. So like you have studied these people who are sort of focused a lot on risks and problems, basically because they're sort of quite pessimistic in general, like they're always focusing on the negative. So it's sort of like it is like sort of a bit negative pessimistic mindset, right? But then um, I would say that, like well within effective altruism there is like then you know, a, a subset of effective altruists but like a large a large subset which is focused on the long term future because they think that uh, well the most effective way of, of doing good is to to help making sure that, that the long term future becomes as good as possible and the the, the reason for that is that like the, the the future can be so long and and so good that like if you manage to Influence that that then can sort of dwarf any interventions that we can do that sort of help people who are alive today. Um, so, so, what are the
0: time scales we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, like millions of years. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, wow! I mean, in, in principle, like you know, there's, you know humanity could, could live on, you know. um, but anyway, so, so, there, there is this like sort of abstract argument for why the long-term future is very important. But then you come to the next problem, which is like, well, how, how can you influence the long-term future? And th- that's very difficult. Like if you, it's one way of making that clear is to think, well, what if you lived in the Roman era, like 2000 years ago, and you were trying to influence things like 2020, like, how, how would you do it? It would be very difficult. Like, well, you can- <laughs> That's, sort that's of a good question, yeah. Reform laws or something, but like, you know, you could bet that those laws would just be gone by, by 2020. Or, so, so, so there's a general problem that like whatever you do, it might just be reversed later on. And, uh, so it's very unclear what one can actually do to uh, uh, sort of change the long run course of, of, of the world. But one thing one can uh, know that is that, like, if humanity goes extinct, then it will stay extinct. So, uh, like, so because like that, a, there's there's a difference there between like extinction prevention and many other things that you can do. That there is like a greater degree of certainty that like your your actions will have a long run effect. At, at least that's. Uh, uh, what you what you might think like at as a first pass. So for that reason, uh, effective altruists uh, and long termists, they've said that well, uh, extinction prevention and uh, that may be something very effective. So um, so this line of thinking is sort of like you you're coming um, to uh, you you. You're, you're interested in extinction risks, but for very different reasons than from these like more pessimistic people. it's not because you have this like pessimistic negative mindset no it's more like well you you think that the future can be very very, very good like you're very optimistic about uh, that uh, future so like uh, Nick Bostrom, for instance, who is like very much a, a leading advocate of, of this approach, he has this um, article, which is, I think is called The Letter from Utopia, where it sort of writes about like how, <laughs> how great things could become in, in the future. Um, so, um, so it's very much not this negative pessimistic mindset, but it's more like a combination of being optimistic about the future, but then also realizing that there might not be so many things that we can do now to influence the long-term future. But one thing that we can do is to reduce extinction risk. But of course-
0: So what are those? Can you give an example? Is it asteroids? Uh, yeah.
1: Well, asteroids is, um, a, is a potential risk, but it's small. So uh, Toby Ord, who is uh, uh, another researcher who works closely with, with Bostrom, uh, he has recently written this book called The Precipice. On uh, the different existential risks. So existential risks are extinction risks plus risks that threaten to um, sort of permanently curtail uh, humanity's potential. So like we, we
0: you know, maybe so we, we would, would eventually re- go extinct anyway.
1: Oh, uh, we need not or go more extinct, but we can sort of uh, we will remain not Sort of you no, know, we won't thrive. Yeah, for for some reason. Uh, Anyway, so uh, th- this book, uh, which I recommend, it's sort of uh, provides an overview over the existential risks. And um, uh, Toby, he thinks that, I think he says that there's a one in six chance that humanity will go extinct uh, this century. And then he says that, there, like, that the largest risk comes from artificial intelligence. Uh, which is, as, is one in 10, so 10%. And then there are risks from um, uh, uh, synthetic biology. So, for instance, a, like a, an engineered virus, which is like 3% or so. And then I think there was like an unknown risk, which was 3%. And then the rest were sort of very small uh, the, uh, the risks from, from other causes. Yeah, to Francis the extent Astrid. that I've,
0: yeah, okay. So to the extent that I've read uh, about these kinds of risk assessments, I have noted that climate change is almost never mentioned in these yeah. in, in this context.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Like, uh, well, he Toby has uh, uh, like a chapter or like quite a few pages on climate change, but then I think he comes down to saying that it's like a fairly small risk. I don't remember the exact number now, but it's not zero, but it's, uh, but, but, but then you have to
0: remember that this is, this is the extinction risk or the risk of human, humankind coming down to a level of not being able to thrive at all. It doesn't mean that it's not a risk uh, that we will have problems.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then you can also, of course, discuss like, well, maybe if um, there is a catastrophe, uh, sort of uh, caused by climate change. Then that might sort of cause, uh, you know, some kind of political instability, and that might lead to wars. So it can lead to something else. And so, those sort of indirect uh, effects are, of course, important to think about. They're very hard to predict.
0: But what would the action uh, be? What's the recommendation? Uh, wh- where to take action, so to speak, in order to to uh, prevent these extreme uh, extinction risks to happen, from happening? Yeah,
1: um, I, generally, I think that you have to look at each particular risk and think like, what, what can we do about this particular risk? So, I mean, with artificial intelligence, for instance, people are now doing sort of technical research to uh, develop, AI systems that are more safe or sort of also maybe to some extent also just prepare for future such developments, sort of like trying to look at the wh- which which kinds of which ways do we want to go in in order for these systems to become safe like it's, you know it 's early days, but you, you want to prepare and also to think about legislation uh, and, and, and things like that and governance. Um, and uh, yeah, with the with bio risks, uh, that I, I'm, I'm very much not an expert, but uh, yeah, obviously, like legislation matters there as well. I, I, yeah, I guess it's often like trying to become an expert on the, the technical details, and then once you and also to sort of get in a position of of influence and then trying to sort of push things in a more safety oriented uh direction
0: okay so how do you how do you think it will all end up in the end uh, it would all go in the end, but uh, i mean i you don't have to answer for how it's going to go in one million years, but maybe the coming centuries or so, would mm. you say that you're an optimist or a pessimist
1: yeah so uh if I just had to give it a yes or no like answer to that i would i would say I'm more on the optimistic side like i, I do buy this view that like well many people have have argued for like well stephen pinker and enlightenment two two this uh that like well lots of things have become better and like we have reason to believe that they will continue to get better but then i also find sometimes that this debate between the sort of optimists and pessimists it's um somewhat unfortunate because it becomes like almost like well you're on this team and like you're on that team it becomes like a bit almost tribal a bit like you know liberals versus conservatives well not on that level maybe but but mm. so uh, so, I would draw this sort of thing that well, one should sort of try to analyze each issue uh you know on its own merits. There are some things which don't seem necessarily to go in the right direction right now, like you know the, like we touched upon before, like the geopolitical situation seems to be worse now than it was in the in the nineties, for instance, and you know, who knows But that that could very well continue to to get worse. Um, I do with with respect to risks. Um, I do think that there is one sort of psychological consideration which some people sometimes miss. So, which is that, like, uh, precisely because people are so afraid of catastrophes and they're so focused on risk, they often don't occur. Because like people will take action against them, so hmm. there, there hmm. there's something that I, in, uh, I have called like a sleepwalk bias. So you're sort of assuming that people will just sleepwalk into disaster, hmm. uh, but that's just not true. If we if we look at history, for instance, like well, s- people have worried about many things. Like well, obviously there's like the population explosion, which is widely discussed, but there are also other things like. Um, that uh, very many countries would get uh, nuclear weapons, but they actually managed to prevent that, and like m- many, much fewer countries have nuclear weapons now than they once feared. Which is great, obviously, because it, it lowers the the risk of of nuclear war. So, um, and then there's the, there's the ozone layer where you know action also was taken. Uh, so, so I I think that. Um, that gives us some reason to believe that
0: mm.
1: various risks might be lower than you sort of naively that's, might That's think. a
0: silver lining to the negativity bias. Then.
1: Exactly, there is a bit. But the, 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 yeah. the, the tricky thing is, of course, like you can't say to people like, well, you don't have to do anything because they will just take care <laughs> of themselves. Like, No, it's just because people care about it, because people do take action. That's why yeah. they're going to... Um, uh, some extent they're going to address it. I, I also think that like you don't have to have necessarily this like extremely negative mindset in order to sort of address risks in this way. And, and I, I I think people often necessarily didn't have that, like those people who, who, who address these risks rationally. I mean, you, you could just, uh, I mean, you don't have it like to be super emotional in order no.
0: to... No, I think it's yeah. the opposite. But I mean, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And it's interesting. I, I think optimists are often better at uh, bettering the world than pessimists. I mean, if you're a hardcore pessimist, then you don't take action, of course, because then you're not a pessimist. If you take action, you're not a hardcore pessimist.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So
0: you have to have some kind of notion that things might get better. And so there's a point in me trying to make it better. Right. Um, so I know Hans Rosling, the Swedish professor who was traveling a lot and talking about the bettering of the world. He 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 didn't want to call himself an optimist. And I always thought that, that was a bit he was a bit intellectually vain, I think. <laughs> he wouldn't admit that, but he called himself a possibilist. Mm. Because be, a better word is possible. But I, I wouldn't say I'm I, I, I'm sure that it's going to happen. But I think I think people are too afraid to call themselves to themselves optimists because uh, I mean I, I think it's the only I'm talking about my personal view now it's 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 the only um, responsible way of looking at the world it's to be an optimist because if you're an optimist you think that uh, things are going to work out and that's why you walk into the future with 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 um, w- with a mindset that is creative you can create things because I think what while well, you might uh, uh, say what you think about this but I think I think that w- what people have in their minds what they think they want to create, what, what they want to create, what they want to manifest, what they, what they are focusing on, that is also what is going to happen. I mean, nothing can happen in this world that has to do with humankind that has not been the figment of some people's or some groups of people's imagination. It, I, I, it wouldn't happen if, if, if it wasn't. What do you think about that?
1: Right. So then you're saying that uh, one... Should be an optimist in the way that one should sort of like be imaginative and sort of imagine these positive scenarios, because if one, if one doesn't imagine these positive scenarios, then one is not going to work towards them, and then they're not going to be real. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I guess uh, they, they- Nothing is uh, created
0: that isn't, isn't, isn't created in, in, in a person's mind first, often- yeah. From some kind of love. I mean, love is a big word, but you you might have love for this project that you your right. pet project that you want to create, and then you just do it, and all of a sudden yeah. it's there, and everyone, whoa, fantastic! Now we can f- fly without uh, petrol, or I don't know something. Right, but fantastic happens.
1: Yeah, I guess. Um uh first of all I, I I do think there are sort of fallacies which are which uh, optimists are prone to make like I mean uh I guess um, I don't know about uh, Neville Chamberlain you know the peace. Uh, yes peace uh, in time our time minister. like if he was like generally uh, an optimist but he certainly was too optimistic uh regarding Hitler's intentions, like so it, it should have been more pessimistic. And like and uh, I mean there are many examples like that that were like people have been negligent of, of risks. Uh, um, so I'm not saying that like that's something that's uh, necessarily a feature of, of optimism, but uh, it is uh, something to be on the lookout for. The other thing, like one one could have is, of course, that well, you, you might want to have like some element of, of diversity, right? So there's this uh, idea that, like, well, why are some people so neurotic and pessimistic? Well, mm-hmm. that's because. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying this is true, but th- this is a story you might tell that like on the savannah, like there were some light sleepers who like woke up when the lions were around and like, you know, they saved the rest of the
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, I can <laughs> understand that group. So why not? And mm-hmm. like,
1: similarly, you, you you know, you might be good to have like some people who are like more pessimistically inclined to sort of who are on the lookout for um
0: yeah, well, what what I can what I can appreciate very much. I'm a fairly, act, I take action pretty easily. I think normally, uh, but I, I more and more uh, appreciate people who, so to speak, uh, put on the brakes sometimes, because right. uh, it's a it's a good thing to some kind sometimes look up and look around and see what, is, what has been going on and uh, if you might, as you say, have missed some kind of hurdles or some kind of problems that you didn't see. On beforehand so the 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 the, break, the what do you call them the people the people who put on the brakes they are very much needed sometimes so that's i don't know if you want to call them pessimists but they're perhaps realists yeah very much needed right right mm. okay so you're you anyway you think that it's going to end Fairly well, uh, all things considered.
1: <laughs> yeah, like um, basically, uh, it, it, it's it's very difficult to say. I I I don't uh, necessarily think that the risk of extinction is uh, overwhelmingly high here over the um, uh, in the near future. Um, but I, I probably would think it's like somewhat less likely than what uh, Toby Ord would, would say in, in his book. Uh, so he said there was like one sixth in, in this century, if I remember. But like one thing that I worry about, which is um, also related actually to this uh, loss aversion idea, is that we will sort of not advance that much either, like certainly we will we will make sort of technological progress, but we might not sort of do that much to sort of permanently uh, improve the security situation. So permanently reduce the the risk of of war. So like uh, you know now we've had the nuclear weapons uh, for seventy five years. Yeah, seventy five years. Yeah, and uh, like that's very bad because like every year there is a, a certain risk uh and you could argue that well sooner or later it might erupt into war because of an accident or mm-hmm. or, or something so uh but i um and it, like yeah also in other ways like we we aren't seeing uh so much more international cooperation that that we haven't seen that much more of that, uh, uh, like in the post-war period. It's, well, there maybe there some is something
0: is going on beyond, be, be beneath the surface because we are looking very much uh, on what is happening between world leaders all the time. Yeah, but maybe there are some other other movements going on uh, beneath the surface between organizations like like effective altruism and, and other big organizations, and, and even through social media between. Between citizens of the world, which has not been, been possible uh, before. So that's I, I'm just uh, throwing this in here because
1: yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, like, relatedly, uh, there are sort of value shifts which are happening, uh, not fast, but uh, but so steadily, like so that uh, people's like moral values are sort of shifting in a more liberal direction. Uh, and this yeah. is a global phenomenon, mm-hmm. and this has and will continue to have like political consequences. Uh, so, yeah, one one could hope for that, but but still, it seems to me that like nationalist feelings are very, very strong in in many countries, and uh, well, you know. In, in some respects, the development is even going backwards from that perspective, you know, with the Brexit, for instance. And um, so I, I, I think there's some- um,
0: Well, we haven't seen that yet <laughs> uh, no, in practice. Uh,
1: well, well, let's see, yeah. But so like all in all, I think uh, there's some chance uh, that, uh, you know, the, the rest of the century we will sort of muddle through, we will, will not, extinct or there won't be any sort of extreme catastrophe and there would be continued economic progress and there would be uh, technological advances, but there won't be sort of a, a drastic change of the sort of political system, which would sort of permanently reduce the risk of war to like very low uh, figures or so, but will continue. Okay. With this uh, sort of the muddle through
0: conflict. theory, yeah, yeah, that's what it, what is it on the table. Why not? I mean, uh, that's probably better than many people would think. Um, what I personally yeah. think, well, doesn't really matter, but it's interesting. Muddle through is not the worst, actually. That's what you often say about the European Union. It muddles through right. all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been its uh, d- demise has been predicted uh, umpteen times. But it, but it never happens.
1: Yeah, and I also should caveat with that by saying that, well, maybe muddle through sounds like a bit too negative, because I do think that we're going to see continued uh, GDP growth and you know all of these metrics which uh, you know people have talked about so much, like you know infant mortality and life expectancy and all of that's going to continue mm-hmm. to improve, and, and, and that's going to be. That's going to be great. So, yeah, so,
0: yeah, yeah it should be. So, a, a, a nice and a nice and fine and pretty muddle through uh, during the next century, with yeah. some some advancements in uh, on different metrics. Excellent. Uh, nice way to end end this interview. Uh, thank you very much, Stefan Schubert, and good luck you with you. your very. You're welcome with a very important um, research on, uh, on effective altruism and uh, long-term risk assessments.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.